Have you ever considered doing something that others might consider risky? Well, welcome to the Bible Studies for Life adult podcast. This podcast is hosted each week by Chris Johnson and myself, Lynn Pryor. So, Chris, I got to ask you, have you ever done something that others might consider risky? The first thing that came to my mind, Lynn, was doing a podcast with you. <laughs> Couldn't help myself. Well, thank I'm sorry. You very much. Um, you know, I am pretty risk averse, uh, but um, I've just had conversations in the last couple of weeks with people from early in my ministry of career of, and the, there were, there were two churches that really took a risk on me. They, you know, I was young as a student pastor and from a very practical, reasonable perspective, uh, I I could see all the reasons why a church would have said, we can't hire him. He's too young. And my first pastor, it was the same way. I didn't have a lot of experience. Didn't what it was my first pastorate, but a church took a risk. And so I'm, I'm, I'm appreciative of, of churches who are willing to do those kind of things. How about you? Oh yeah. I've, I've done my share of risky things. Jump out of an airplane. Well, no, I, I used to do a lot of cycling. Oh, get uh, ride my bicycle. Love to ride my bicycle and, Going up those hills hard, it was tough, but it was sure fun coming down. And I can think of times, I remember this one occasion, going down this hill, just flying down this hill. I looked at my speedometer, I was going like five miles an hour. And I tell you, it's a great rush. But then all of a sudden I realized, you know, if I hit a little rock, I'm dead meat. I'm gone. So I braked and slowed down. But it's just, I know that's risky, but it's it's fun at the same time. Uh I probably I look back, it's more stupid than risky. <laughs> but we're talking about risk here. Uh, and Chris, your example is ties right in. We're talking about because sometimes following God's leadership, it can be risky. And that's what we're going to look at today. So joining us for this podcast, as we look into the, the story of Mordecai and Esther, joining us is Dr. Sam. Dr. Crouch is the writer of this study on mentoring. Sam, thank you for joining us for this study. Glad to be here. And I'm glad that Sam wrote this study, not just because he's a good writer, his background as an editor and as a pastor. Uh, Sam, you also got a book on the Old Testament that you have written, uh, the book Clearing the Fog. Now, this book's been out a year now, two years? Just about a year, yes. Uh, and I appreciate your insights on that. Just the idea of the book, Clearing the Fog, it's gaining an understanding and appreciation of the Old Testament. And I think that and I, I just why I value the fact you're writing this study that so much of it out of these uh, these stories out of Old Testament history. So thank you. You know, the, the whole idea of that book came out of a conversation I had with one of my church members who said, you know what, I've, I've taken up your challenge to read through the Bible and I'm in the Old Testament right now. And he says, but I tell you what, this will be the last time I read through the Old Testament. He says, I hate it. I don't understand it. It's filled with uh, blood and guts and, and incest and all these kind of things. And he said, frankly, I don't understand it. And so I decided I need to write a book. I wanted to entitle it A Layman's Guide to, um, or, you know, dummy, uh, Old Testament for Dummies, but that's kind of copyrighted. But it really is just trying to help a layperson understand that the Old Testament is rich and it's understandable. 
It really is. And the fact they have those those horrible stories there, life is real and it's not covered up in a spiritual sense uh, to realize how God exactly. works and how God judged and all that. And we're going to see how God worked as we look at this story out of the book of Esther. We're going to look at primarily two individuals. Some others are going to come into the conversation, but primarily two individuals named Esther and Mordecai. So before we, we're going to be in Esther 2, but before we get in Esther 2, context is important. Sam, can you kind of tee the ball up for us? What is happening in the book of Esther? Well, Esther is uh, a book that was written after the end of the exile uh, period. In fact, it uh, took place in about the 5th century B.C. King Xerxes was on the throne. Uh, depending on which Bible you're reading from, he could be called Ahasuerus or Xerxes. But he had been married to a queen by the name of Vashti. And uh, one of his big banquets, he wanted Vashti to come out and parade her beauty before his all of his guests. And she refused to do it. And uh, as a result of that, um, she was kind of deposed as queen. And over time, uh, the king decided, hey, I'm missing my wife. Uh, and his advisor said, we'll get you a new queen. So they had this big beauty pageant and uh, to select, you know, the next queen. And um, our uh, hero of, of the book, Esther, uh, was uh, selected. And so that's kind of the uh, the background there, but then you, when you get to chapter two, we run into a kind of a conflict between a Mordecai and a man by the name of Haman. And I don't know if you know anything about Haman, but one of the things that's kind of interesting there is that Haman was second in command of the kingdom and Mordecai would not bow down to him. It's interesting because there are a number of recorded incidents in the Old Testament where Jews would bow before a government official as a sign of respect. But here is Mordecai, and he's refusing to show respect to this government official. So we ask the question, what gives? One of the things to realize is that Haman was the son of, uh, I hope I can get this name right, Hamaditha, who was called an Agagite. And the name Agagite gives us a clue. Uh, Haman's descendants were ancient enemies of Israel. They were the Amalekites. And if you think, remember that in Deuteronomy 25, God had given very specific instructions to Israel to destroy the Amalekites and erase their memory from under heaven. Um, it, you know, one of the things that we see is in Samuel, the prophet Samuel had personally executed Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites uh, when Saul had refused to do so. And so here is Haman, and he's a descendant of the royal line of Agag, and, and so therefore he was called an Agagite. And so here is these two ancient enemies. And so Mordecai wasn't about to show respect to the enemy. Um, and that whole thing ticked Haman off, and so it led to this decision to you know, bring a petition to the king to kill not just Mordecai, but really the entire Jewish uh, race of Jewish people living in, in the kingdom. So the book of Esther is really focused on this edict that was given and how Esther and Mordecai stepped in to expose it and to deal with it. So important to note that um, Esther does not reveal her Jewish background uh, to the king. So he is unaware of this. Um, uh, so I'm assuming uh, 
Haman unaware as well. That's right. So we're going to be in Exodus, or excuse me, Esther chapter two, and we're kind of kind of going to back move backwards a little bit in this story. This is in the period where the the king is in the process of looking for the queen. So we pick up in verse five with these words. In the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shemiel, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Kish had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah, that is Esther, because she had no father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good-looking. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. Now, we're going to stop there. We're just introducing these two individuals, cousins, but Mordecai has adopted his cousin, in a sense, as to be his daughter. Now, what we're setting this up here is because we're talking about mentoring relationships, and Mordecai is in a mentoring relationship within the family, because we're going to see something in a bit what how he counsels her. Uh, but what I find interesting is we talk about mentoring. We never think necessarily in terms of mentoring family members, yet that's the very thing we see happening here with Mordecai. Somehow you you get the impression as you read this book that, that uh, Mordecai must have been a little older than uh, than Esther was. At least that's the impression I get as I read it. We you know, call them cousins, but in my mind's eye, it's almost like an uncle and a niece or that kind of thing. But he was the one who took the lead in helping her to uh, understand how to govern as the queen in such a way that it really rescued the, the Jewish people. And now it's not in our focal passage, but you've already referred to this. Esther uh, is being counseled by Mordecai, who's her adopted father, on how uh, she's going to be brought into this royal beauty pageant, counsels her on what to do. And one of the things is just, you know, you don't necessarily don't reveal your nationality at this point. And so there's a sense there was some influence he had as a family member. And again, I don't want us to lose the significance of this. This is partly why we're talking about Mordecai and Esther. We talk about who can I mentor? Who can I, who can I disciple? They're right there in your house with you. We have great opportunities to influence, uh, whether they're our children, our grandkids, or even influence those who are older than us just because of our own walk with Christ. And I think sometimes... Um... Parents say, okay, I know that I need to, you know, raise my children right, but stop right there and recognize parents, you need to mentor your children. It, it just doesn't happen automatically. It needs to be an intentional thing that you do with your, with your children or uh, uncles with uh, nephews and nieces or whatever, but it, it needs to be an intentional choice. Uh, good mentoring, good discipleship, whatever doesn't happen just because, you know, you're you're related to one another. It's got to be an intentional choice that's made. I had a pastor that would often say, it'd say to the adults in, the, in our congregation, your kids don't need you to be their best friend. They need you to be their parent. And he's kind of underscoring that thing. Sometimes you've got to mentor them in a way you need to guide them. They need your guidance more than they just need you to be their buddy. So in our family, we've, Kathy and I have noticed that, uh, uh, in the last year, we've had 
nephews and nieces reach out to us and contact us and ask us some things, sometimes just practical things. My wife's a nurse, so sometimes it's uh, health kind of related questions. Uh, but then uh, there's been some spiritual things that have come up or some just practical things where they they know us and they trust us and they've they've reached out to say, hey, um, what do you think about this? Or uh, uh, my, Kathy's just has some has had some tremendous spiritual conversations with uh, nieces and nephews. So uh, we just need to know that that sometimes we have those opportunities. Lynn, just like you talked about in our families because of the relationships that we have. And uh, one of the questions that we ask in this section is um, what uh, are some ways family members um, can effectively minute, uh, serve as a mentor for one, one another? So I think I hope that that'll cause some people to have conversations about these things uh, and to think about their own families. We get into Esther. Uh, we're going to move into chapter four, but a lot has happened between chapter two and chapter four. And and Sam has already brought us up to speed on that, that Mordecai would not bow to Haman. Haman reacted and decided he wanted to kill Mordecai, but he was going to do it in the way of, I'm going to just kill all the Jews. I'm just going to wipe them all out. So an edict is, is issued by the king that on, on, on such and such day, uh, the Jews will be executed. Well, Mordecai is now going to step in. This is where he's now going to give counsel to Esther on how to respond to this. Um, so let me pick up in uh, Esther 4. This is verse 8. Mordecai also gave to him, this is to a man named Hatak, uh, gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, a court, uh, ordering their destruction, so that Hathak might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and command her to approach the king, implore his favor, and plead with him personally for her people. Hatak came and, report, and repeated Mordecai's response to Esther. Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to tell Mordecai. All the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies, one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned, the death penalty, unless the king extends the gold scepter, allowing that person to live. But I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you're in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time this. A few weeks ago, as we looked at the uh, relationship between Moses and Jethro, we saw how Jethro responded to what was going on in Moses' life by not initially just telling him what to do. He asked questions. And although Mordecai in this situation is kind of, Esther, this is what you need to do. I like the fact he ends it with a question to get her to kind of think about how she'd respond. Who knows, Esther, perhaps perhaps you've come to a report, report, royal position for such a time as this. What a great question to ponder her, to, for her to ponder and to think about how she should respond. And I think that's, that's a part of mentoring is 
is there comes a point when you need to challenge the person that you're mentoring uh, to take that next step up to to do the, the next best thing that they've got to do. They've, they've got to be challenged to do the right thing. And uh, in this case, he was challenging her regardless of the consequences. You've got to do this or there will be some really severe consequences. And this is where the risk comes in. I mean, from the scripture, it's very obvious that uh, she had a 50-50 chance of losing her head over the situation or, uh, or, or being uh, given an audience with the king. And she took that risk, but uh, Mordecai had to challenge her to do that. We always want to take the easy way, but the easy way is not always the right way. And you're right, Sam. Uh, that's what Mordecai did here. He challenged her to think, think about doing what's right. One of the questions we ask in this section is, what are some obstacles that get in the way of people doing what is right? And uh, they may not always be life and death kind of circumstances, but th there are things that that pop up that cause us to, to hesitate to step um, up to do the right thing, and uh, this is an this is something for us to consider as we uh, as we talk about Esther's example. So we see how Esther's going to respond. Esther four, verse fifteen. We're going to see her response, but then I want to see what she asked Mordecai to do as a part of her response. Esther Esther sent this reply to Mordecai: Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa, and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went and did everything Esther had commanded him. So we need to understand that uh, the, the call to fast, uh, prayer is involved. Uh, implied. It, it's not stated specifically, but uh, I, I need you to, for this season, to pray and fast uh, for God to intervene in this situation. And I think that's a key thought there. Uh, the book of Esther has gotten a lot of, of kickback because the word God is not found anywhere in the text. But uh, God is throughout this book. I mean, God is supernaturally moving in the hearts of people and so forth. And so when you read fasting, it fasting in the Jewish life included prayer and fasting. And so this is a very, very spiritual book, even though the name God is not written in there. God's hand is all over the action in this book. Yeah, I would dare say they wouldn't even think of fasting without praying. It just it goes hand in hand for them. And I, I see a God element here too, Sam, and just Esther's response. There is a sense of submission, surrender, the, we're God's people, and that total surrender to God's will, where she says, if I perish, I perish. You know, I'm going to do God's will, whatever the cost. So Esther's closing words were, if I perish, I perish. Now, we could stop here, have a closing word of prayer, and I'll be through with our Bible study. But we've got to know what's what happens next. Sam, give us give us what happens in the rest of the book of Esther. Okay, so Esther approaches the king, and uh, in God's gracious timing, the king extends that golden scepter, and uh, she is allowed to come in. And it's interesting that uh, she had her own way of pulling this thing off. She invited the king and Haman to a, a, a banquet, to a, a formal dinner, and uh, 
So they came to the dinner and the king said, okay, what, what is it you want? And so what does she do? She says, well, I want you all to come tomorrow for another dinner. And uh, so during this whole thing, Haman is just busting with pride. You know, I'm the <laughs> only one who's been invited to this special dinner. I must be the top dog in the kingdom. And uh, so at the next dinner, she reveals to the king that I am a Jew or Jewess. And, and um, uh, you know, suddenly Haman realizes his goose is cooked and uh and uh, as a result of that, this gallows that Haman had prepared to hang Mordecai on, uh, he ends up being hung on himself. And as a result of this, uh, the Jewish people are saved. And coming out of this is the Feast of Purim, where they celebrate the deliverance that came about through the hand of Esther and, and the, the mentoring of Mordecai in this whole incident. And Sam, Mordecai essentially got Haman's position, correct? Right. Yes, and became one who really then began to, to write a lot of laws that not only protected the Jews, but allowed them in turn to uh, go after the, their enemies, those who wanted to kill them as well. So we see the end of the story that by Esther doing what was right, uh, how it not just impacted her and, and Mordecai, but the entire Jewish people. And the challenge for us in this is us for us to encourage others as we mentor, as we disciple, as we invest in others, encourage them to follow God's leadership, no matter what the cost. Right. I mean, this could be called the book of Mordecai because he's the one who was the mentor who uh, started the whole ball rolling and uh, to save the Jewish people. Uh, Esther is is the, the heroine. But Mordecai is also there as one who took took the uh, the task at hand to serve as the mentor to help his cousin to do the right thing. Well, Sam, thank you for writing this uh, study for us and for being a part of this podcast today. And uh, again, I just want to affirm and thank you for writing it in such a way that there are practical applications for anyone to see how they can use their influence to mentor others. Uh, you did it in every session. I'm grateful for uh, the work that you do, and it's a pleasure to have you on our podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoy it. And we do hope all of you have a great Bible study this week.